Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 3. Before we jump in, just a few notes. Uh, for one, it's becoming clear to me and probably painfully clear to you that at this pace I've been using, we'll finish this book a year from now. Granted, a lot of the most dense passages are here in the beginning. Um, it does lighten up a bit as we continue going, but we're beginning chapter 3 today on episode 3 and main story isn't even hinted at until chapter 6. From there, a lot does happen. Um, what we'll need to keep in mind, especially as we get closer there now, is how much the cast is about to expand. Uh, so far, we've had 14 Valar plus Melkor to worry about. Um, and now here come the elves. I know, it's about time. Uh, it, but Tolkien gives us, it, uh, he almost gives us this like taxonomy for them. You know, the whole like scientific kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species stuff. Um, He'll be like, so the elves came, and now they're split into two groups, and then this group branches into these three, and then this other group you know, branches into these two to four, and you know, all this kind of stuff happens. Um, and if we get through all of that, you know, if that if that floats your boat, have fun going back and reading about it. But for our purposes going forward, um, I'm going to try to gloss over this elf nature stuff as, as much as possible. Um Luckily for us, though, we'll, we will end up in a place where we have like two groups, maybe, something like that, um, that we're actually following for the course of the story, not tons. Um, I think going forward, I'm still going to keep trying to hunt through fan art and stuff I can find on Instagram, um, stuff I can share there, just to kind of help give some pictorial references. Um, now, I'm, I'm not entirely sure how much... This episode's going to be long. It's going to be a long one. Um, I'm, I'm a bit nervous, um, but it's definitely going to be longer than past episodes. Um, but so if things get a little weary by the end of it, um, fingers crossed my voice holds out. Um, I'm just going to say this part now and get it over with, though. So as always, questions, if you got them, please tell me. Uh, email, Instagram, DM, you know the drill. Home is behind pod at gmail.com. My Instagram is what T John, J O N, what T John likes. All right, enough of that crap. Let's get going. All right, so with our prologue finally complete, the world stands like this The Valar live in the far west on a continent called A Man in a city called Valinor. A man is lit by two magical trees. The rest of the world of Arda is starlit. The remaining continent, Middle Earth, was ruined and captured by Melkor, but then abandoned by the Valar. Also, uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines have a marital spat, which leads to the creation of dwarves and ants. Um, although they're placed in stasis, they're not going to arrive on the, you know, the scene for some time. Um, our Joanna Gaines character is Yavanna, Varda, not Varda, v Valar of uh, plants and animals. Um, Yavanna does visit Middle-earth from time to time to continue to tend to these plants and animals. Um, Orome, who is the, the helper of Tolkis, he's that hunter of monsters, he also spends a great deal of his time in Middle-earth, riding back and forth searching for monsters. Um, he starts to notice that in the absence of the Valar, that Melkor has kind of maintained his first stronghold, named Utumno, in the far north of Middle-earth, but he's started to branch out a bit. He's created a second stronghold nearer to the western coast, and it's a place called Angbad, and he's placed his second-in-command there, a Maiar named Sauron. Now, the Valar hold a meeting 
and they begin to freak out about totally procrastinating on this whole Melkor situation because uh, the elves seem like they might be showing up any day now, and it's dangerous out there. And Tolkis hasn't had anything to do for ages now, except apparently be married. So he's like, yeah, I've been saying this for a while. Um, but Manwe, High King of Air, decides to consult Mandos, the, the doomsman and seer of the Valar. And Mandos says, oh, indeed, they're, they're coming soon. But it is fate that they come in starlight and forever look to Lady Varda, Queen of Stars, for guidance and comfort. So Varda leaves. She adds a bunch of elven constellations to the sky. Uh, and it's said that as soon as she finishes that, way far away to the east, further east in Middle-earth than any who are familiar with the Hobbit or Lord of the Rings are familiar with, um, the elves awaken, and they look first to those stars. And they dwell there for a very long time. Tolkien doesn't say how long, or how many elves appeared into being at this time. We only know that once Orome comes upon them while hunting one day, that there's a whole bunch. Um, we do know from some other Tolkien texts that have kind of popped up over the years that years pass slowly for elves. Um, that's kind of one of the hallmarks of them as we get into the series. They, uh, to humans, they appear as if they're immortal. They don't get, you know, viruses and illnesses and things, and they, they don't seem to really age. Um, the slow aging has, it has a lot more to do with their spirits than anything else. Um, you know, for... This, at least this is the way it makes sense to me for comparison's sake. In, in Tolkien's mythology, um, humans are bodies with souls. Elves are souls with bodies. Does that, does that make sense? Um, anyway, the aging has more to do with their souls burning out with the emotional and psychological stress of just years and years and years of crap. Uh, they don't get like disease, you know, that's not what ages them. It's it's this weight of existence <laughs> that just burns them out. Um, and then I, I'm, there's some place Tolkien has written as where, uh, like a a human year for them is like 140 or something like, like like there's this year to 144 year equivalency thing there. So like you know, uh, an elf year is like 144 human years, some, something like that. So. Um, which, by the way, apparently Tolkien includes gestation in that. So um, do the math on a nine-month pregnancy for humans and find that equivalent for elves. <sighs> yeah. Um, so all that to say, there, there's some potential that these elves have been around for quite a while before the Valar finally discover they've arrived, especially if they've been propagating and there's a lot of them. It's not entirely sure if they are yet or not. Um, well, that and because when Orome hears them singing in the distance... When he moves closer, they're afraid of him, and they think that he's the hunter. Not really, he's the, he is the hunter, but they think he's this different hunter. The hunter to the elves is this being they've learned will make elves that stray away from the group disappear. And it's Melkor. He found the elves first, and in his desire for total control and hatred of everything good created by anybody else, he's been stealing them away and torturing them. And it's said that this is how the evil creatures of Tolkien's mythos, the orcs, are created. Orome is eventually able to put them at ease, and he stays a while. He's enthralled by this people the Valar have all been waiting to meet. He finally goes back to Valinor. And I may as well tell everybody they're here, and he, he basically just sticks his head in the door and yells, Found them! 
so did Melkor, and then turns right around and leaves, books it back to Middle-earth. He can't stand to be apart from him. The rest of the Valar, at the council of Iluvatar himself, finally decide, enough is enough with Melkor shit. So they all go in force to finally give Tolkien something to do. Uh, apparently it's such a long, climactic battle, and the siege of Utumno is so long that the landscape itself has changed. Um, but finally they, they get the gates open, and Tolkien runs in like a kid at Toys R Us. R.I.P., pour out a glass. Um, and beats the crap out of Melkor. They bind him hand and foot, and blindfolded, and they cart him off to Valinor, where he's imprisoned in the halls of Mandos. Um, but some evil things, including Sauron escape in the chaos. So everyone's a bit shaken up and exhausted, and now the question of the elves remains. Some Valar want them to just come to Valinor, where it's safe. Some want them to be left alone. Let them do what they want. Let them explore Middle-earth. Let them continue to exist as they would exist. Um, but the ones wanting them to come to Valinor win out. And then good old Doex Machina Mondo says, Well, yes, they've, they're fated to come. Or, you know, or however the hell he speaks. And he could have a high-pitched voice for all I know. You're, you're all lucky you're not getting my Gollum impression anytime soon. Um, anyway, elves don't want to come. They've only really known Orome, and he just barely earned their trust. And the rest of the Valar, they've only seen in their rage against Melkor. So they're terrified of these titanic demigod figures. So Orome goes again. Um, it's decided that three ambassadors are going to go along with him back to Valinor on behalf of the elves. And then they're going to return and tell the rest what happened. And they do so. And they only have wonderful things to say. And for the most part, each of their clans agree and follow, but a large number don't and decide to stay. Now, here's where that elvish taxonomy gets a little murky, um, because each of these elvish groups now gets a designated title. Um, there's this overarching title given to elves that leave Middle-earth and then those that stay. It, it gets confusing enough, honestly. Um, I'm deciding to withhold as much as possible. For now, let's, on, yeah, let's focus on these three elvish ambassadors, you know, now kings essentially, and their family clans. They are Ingwe, the highest elven king, lord of the Vanyar, which are the fair elves. They're so-called because they have golden hair. There's Finway, leader of the Noldor. These are the deep, wise elves. And then there's Elway, leader of the Teleri, the sea elves. Now, these three groups begin making the long trek westward to reach the coast and then sail to Valinor. Um, here's a quick geography tidbit we need to cover. Remember when I said that the elves awakened and lived in a place even further east from the lands most people know in Middle-earth? I'm talking Far East. In an eastern bay of what was said to be a great inland sea called Helkar. Now, Tolkien doesn't say exactly where this is in relation to the maps he later produced. I'll post some of those later. I like, I like looking at the maps. It makes it easier. Um, even his own son, who helped compile a lot of Tolkien stuff after his passing. Even his son Christopher had to speculate on where this was. Um, but a popular theory, at least the theory I read that sounds cool, is that Mordor was once this sea. 
it became that desolate landscape in much later years when the sea was eventually drained. Anywho, what Tolkien does say is that this great migration, um, it has no urgency to it whatsoever. Orome is leading them all to Valinor through an otherwise uncharted world, and the elves are just taking their sweet time and enjoying the sights. And apparently sometimes Orome has to leave them to, what, for some reason. I don't know what would be more important than leaving, you know, leading the elves to Valinor. Maybe he's got to go attend to a monster or something, but he'll leave them to go do something, and the elves will go, all right, we'll be here when you get back, you know, and they'll just kind of set up shop and just sit around for a while. Um, so anyways, it's in this matter that Tolkien says it takes them years of travel, okay, years of travel, before they reach the banks of the largest river they've ever seen, and it's Anduin the Great. Anduin the Great. The Anduin the Great, the giant river in the center of the Middle-earth most of us know from Tolkien's other stories. The one that stretches along the length of the Misty Mountains, south through Rohan, before entering the southern sea near Minas Tirith and Osgiliath in Gondor. Take some years to get there! So that's our first bit of hint at the early geography and either how much exists to the east than we've seen in other Tolkien stories, or just how large this inland sea was that it took them this long to go around it. It gets crazier, though. Sorry, you ready? The elves stay a while on the eastern banks of Anduin because on the other side are the Misty Mountains. Giant barrier. One that's proven difficult for every traveler in Tolkien's stories. And we're told they're even nastier in this age, of course, because they were literally placed there by Melkor to try and slow down the constant hunting of Orome. Now, Ingwe and his Vanyar... And Finway and his Noldor, they grit their teeth. They, they follow Orome through the passages he knows in the mountains. But the Teleri, um, that much larger group of elves that become the sea elves, they're too afraid for now, and they stay put uh, long enough that large group of them branch off. And they're like, eh, fuck it. This is the end of the line for us. Uh, and they travel south, and they disappear for many, many years. Um... Tolkien then speeds up the narrative, but it's implied that a lot of time still passes, because after getting over the Misty Mountains, the Vanyar and the Noldor continue traveling across Eriador, that's the region most famous for the eventual coming of hobbits, you know, much, much later on, um, and then the Blue Mountains that create a boundary on that westernmost part of Middle-earth, um, and then the Vanyar and the Noldor cross over those mountains, and they've got... They have another piece of land across, is just as big as the one they've already crossed in order to finally reach the coast. A piece of land just as big as the one they've already crossed. Now I'm letting this sink in for a second, because for those of you familiar enough with Jackson's films or the other books themselves, a part of your brain should be starting to scream at me for being stupid. The Blue Mountains in the east well, in the Blue Mountains in the, the west of Eriador, they're the last part of Middle-earth before you reach the sea. Not so in the First Age. In the First Age, the Middle-earth, we all know, is essentially twice as large. And it is on this part of the continent, friends, where every event of the Silmarillion takes place. So, apologies if you've been following along so far waiting for the story to get back to Middle-earth, 
and have at least some familiar places and names. That that was it. That was it. That you know that that crossing through, coming across the Misty Mountains and Anduin. That was it for familiarity. Um, so we'll get back to this new region of Beleriand, which is what it's called. This new region of Beleriand soon. Um, we're going to explore it over the course of the story. But for now, there's just a couple points. The Vanyar and the Noldor eventually reach the west coast of Beleriand. Journey probably takes them, I mean, really j- just as long as that initial crossing through uh, what we all know as Middle Earth. Um, but when they reach this coastline, two things happen. One, Orome goes across the sea to Valinor to talk with the other Valar about how to get this giant host of elves across. Two, the Teleri, led by Elway, who wants desperately to catch up with his pal Finway and the Noldor and get his people to Valinor, they eventually get their butts in gear to follow. Uh, and They just make it into Beleriand on the other side of the Blue Mountains, at the same time that everyone else has already reached the coast. They've procrastinated a bit too much. Um, don't really fully realize that yet. Now, in the middle of Beleriand, there's a huge forest called Regian. Once the Teleri arrive, Elwi goes out searching himself through the forest in hopes of finding sign of the other elves that pass through. Suddenly, he hears the most beautiful singing voice there's ever been. And it's a Maiar, one of those spirits of less power than the Valor, but you know, still essentially an angel, and her name is Melian. She's a servant of Lorien, who is the Valar master of beautiful gardens and of visions and dreams and it said her voice is so beautiful that even the Valar have to stop what they're doing to listen. And she's here in this forest for some reason, um, having taken a physical form, and her beauty reminds Elway of the trees of Valinor that he saw on his ambassadorial trip. And it's beyond love at first sight. It's complete and utter eternal infatuation at, at first sight. And he walks up to her, and he takes her hand, and is immediately enchanted. And the two of them remain there, lost in the oceans of each other's eyes, for years, so long that the trees grew taller around them. That, that's a repeating theme in this first age. Oh, this takes years. You know, this, this took years, too. The trees got taller around them. Um, very long time before any elf ever saw Elway again. And we will get back to these two lovebirds soon. Um... They become very important in the story that's about to be told. But for now, just know the Teleri finally tire of waiting and searching for their king. And so Elway's brother, Olway, takes over and continues to lead the Teleri towards the coast. You starting to notice that trend on names, too? Yeah, it's, they're all way too freaking similar, but we'll see. All right. Sometime before any of this happened, though, as I said before, the, the, the Vanyar and Noldor reach the coast. Orome has gone over the sea to figure out how to bring them over. Now, technically, in this age, Beleriand, this new continent that we're all kind of getting used to, and a man, remember that's the name for the continent where Valinor is located, they, they technically are connected. Um, but it's a land bridge in a narrow bay in the far north, the Helcaraxe. And Melkor's malice in the world has filled it with this dangerous grinding ice. It'd be suicide to lead a whole host of elf clans through there. So, what do the Valar do instead? Oh, they get Ulmo, Valar of the Waters, 
to uproot an entire frickin' island. And he moves it to the shore, and all the elves jump on it, and any frickin' ferries them across on it. Um, but it's too late for the Teleri to hitch a ride. Um, they settle near the sea, and they become even more enamored with it. And two Maiar that serve Ulmo, um, named Yuanin and Ose, they befriend these Teleri, and they, they teach them much about the sea. Um, you know, and in true Tolkien fashion, even more years pass by. Uh, the Vanyar and Noldor getting cozy in their new homes in Valinor, and, you know, the Teleri becoming enamored with, you know, that salt life. Finally, though, Finway, king of the Noldor, if you'll remember, pal of the old king of the Teleri, Elway, misses his friend so much he requests the Valar do something about it. So they send that island express back for the Teleri. Now, the Teleri are broken up a bit more at this point. If you'll remember, they already lost a chunk back at the River Anduin. But now there's a mix of different desires among them, even here. Some love the sea, and Ossie and Yuenen, and they, they choose to stay. They become led by a, a, a fellow named Kirdan the Shipwright, um, who, real quick, is a fun piece of trivia. For those of you familiar with Lord of the Rings, he's the eventual master of the Grey Havens. Um, there's another group of Teleri, too, who are still loyal to the missing Elway, and they don't want to leave until they finally find him. Um, but Olway, at this point, he's in a hurry, and he's like, move it or lose it. So a large number miss the ferry again, and they remain behind just to keep searching for Elway, you know, out of loyalty. And it's said that they, they set up shop and live in the hills near the coast. You know, they can't live right on the coast. They, they feel forsaken. Um, and the sight of the sea and the promise of Valinor on the other side of it, it, it does nothing but fill them with sorrow. But their loyalty is rewarded because soon after, the long enchantment of Elway's broken, and he emerges with Melian at his side, and he's a different being entirely now. They say he's more akin to a Maiar than to an elf. Um, he's gotten taller than any other elf there ever was. He's got this extremely commanding and strong countenance, and his hair has changed to silver gray. And Elway has, has now become, and he's going to be renamed here and ever after as Eluthingal, High King of all Beleriand, and Melian, his High Queen. And they eventually have just one daughter, um, a being half-elf and half-Maiar, and her name is Luthien. Now, these Teleri that remained loyal to him also become known as the Sindar, the Grey Elves. Their kingdoms in the Forest of Regian, which is now named Doriath, um, and it becomes marked by two special things. For one, they've got a Maiar as a queen. So while much of Middle-earth lies asleep beneath the starlight, remember that there's no sun or moon. This is everything starlit still. While much of Middle-earth lies asleep beneath this starlight, um, in, you know, normal plant activity that it typically occurs during daylight has not been happening. Um, Yavanna has been keeping things asleep. There is an enchantment about Doriath because of Melian. Um, so there's palpable life in this kingdom that doesn't exist outside of it yet. Secondly, dwarves show up finally. Um, they come over the Blue Mountains from the many kingdoms they've already been establishing for themselves on the other side. And while there's definitely a language and cultural barrier and, you know, shall we say cold professional air to the dealings they have with the elves, the dwarves prove to learn elvish quickly. Uh, they much prefer to keep their language to themselves as much as possible. Uh, and they establish these great trade routes. 
And for those of you in the know, the greatest dwarven kingdom, even now, in this first age, is Khazad-dum, later named Moria. If you're like me, and you know the entry into that place in Jackson's first film is one of your favorites in that entire movie, just because of how old that old dwarvish kingdom feels, well, there's your answer. It old, old. And much, much later, um, though not long by the standards of what we've already endured here, Thingle decides preparations should be made to make his home more secure. So he enlists more help from the dwarves, and within the forest of Doriath, they make him the mansion of Menagroth, which they dig into the earth in the manner of a dwarven kingdom. So you've got Eluthingal, the Sindar, live in the middle of this giant enchanted forest uh, in this giant underground um, mansion of sorts. So kind of a cool picture. Um, sometime after this, the dwarves who have always been and were created to be, if you remember, a warlike people, they tell Thingol that things go bump in the night on the other side of the mountains, and there are elves there getting torn apart because they're so primitive. And this brings, you know, after a bunch of different stuff happens, this brings those initial Teleri who split from the group ages ago back at Anduin back into the fold of the larger host of Teleri because they're fleeing the orcs. And, you know, while orcs are still unorganized at this point, there's still a constant danger. All right, let's see here. So, oh, whoa, 25 minutes in. Uh, so we've, we've been going for a while now. Um, I've covered like four chap, eh, like four chapters or something. Um I promised we'd keep going today until we actually hit the meat of the story, so we will. I'm going to try to cover a few more. Yeah, the meat of the story hasn't even begun yet, folks. We still have a bit more to go before the stage is fully set. So, for the sake of expediency, I'm, I'm going to rush through these final bits here. Alright. The Vanyar and Noldor are on a man. The Vanyar eventually pick up and they move directly into Valinor, the city of the Valar. They find affinity with Manwe. The Noldor are far more adventurous, far less ass-kissy to the Valar, and they remain outside where they can still hear the sea and they can see the stars. They travel around and they explore this continent of a man. They find affinity with Aule. The, um, if you remember, Aule was our Chip Canes, um, who like the craftsmen. So the, the Noldor really love to be hands-on and to explore things with their hands and the eyes. They're, they're, Tolkien calls them the wise elves. You could probably call them the science elves to a certain extent. You know, you know they, they like to explore and see and do. Um, whereas the Vanyar are far more about like, oh, yes, this is such a pretty place. We're just going to sit and be languid. You know, they're your stereotypical stuffy elf. Um, now, the Teleri, if you'll remember, they were split into four groups. There was one way back near the River Anduin, one along the coast of Beleriand, um, there was that main group in the forest of Regian, the, the Sindar with Thingol and Melian, and then there's that final group on the Island Ferry. Um, they're now effectively two groups, so two big groups of Teleri. You've got all the Beleriand Teleri now falling beneath the rule of Thingol. Um, although I think Kirdan and his group get to remain somewhat sovereign. I think there's like Thingol's High King and they get to do their own thing still, kind of a thing. Um, and then you've got these Teleri on this floating island heading to a man, and there's some shenanigans among these Teleri and the Sea of Valor Olmo and his Meyer Ase, and before they reach the shores of a man, Olmo stops the island 
So it's half in the light of the trees of Valinor and half in the starlight. And the Teleri and Olmo and Ase are all happy. And literally everybody else is pissed off. But you know, eventually the Teleri do build these magnificent swan-shaped boats and they come to a man and they settle there along the coast. And guess what, friends? The fucking stage is finally fucking set. Now, for the players. Luckily for us all, the events of the Silmarillion will be primarily concerned with the Noldor and the Teleri. The Vanyar are going to remain those super ultra-pious stuffy elves. They never leave Valinor. That's pretty much what we get about them. We're not really going to worry about them at all. So, the Noldor. Tolkien loves multiple names for the same characters. Some of our cast have multiple names for the same characters. We're not going to play with that shit. Alright, one name apiece. So, we already know Finway, High King of the Noldor. He has three sons that are born after he's arrived in um, Aman and settled there. His first son, Feanor. Feanor is our high holy piece of shit in this story. He's beyond extra. In fact, he's so extra, his mother Muriel basically does the elvish equivalent of dying after giving birth to him um, while living in the elvish equivalent of heaven uh, because in utero he absorbs so much of her own dang life force. She goes to lie down afterwards for a nap and never wakes up. He's Finway's firstborn and only child from his first wife, so he's a spoiled little asshole. Finway does eventually remarry a Vanyar named Indus, and together they have... You ready for it? Fingolfin and Finarfin. That's right, folks. Fingolfin and Finarfin, um, who, having a, uh, a Vanyar for a mother, have golden hair compared to the typical raven dark hair of the other elves. Um, they're much more pleasant chaps. Uh, quick reminder, again, elves apparently gestate for doing that whole time thing. So if we do the math, yeah, elves apparently, they, they, according to Tolkien, and this is Tolkien, this is Tolkien, apparently, apparently they gestate for like 108 years or some such bullshit, you know, because, just pointing this out, because Feanor gets married, I, I shit you not to to an elf named Nerdanel, um, fine Christian name that, and together Feanor and Nerdanel, she, she pops out seven sons, seven of them, seven, with a hundred and eight gestation period apiece, and and all for the most part, each of these seven, they're for the most part these these grunting Tim Allen, you know, alpha males driving Ford pickups with the metal scrotums hanging from the hitch, you know that. Iluvatar, bless this poor woman. Good lord. Um, we're going to be spending enough time with these straight-up bros for the rest of the story. So, here's their names in quick-fire format. Ready? Sons of Feanor. Maethros, Maglor, Kelegorm, Karinthir, Kurufin, and the twins, Amrod and Amras. After which, I'm pretty sure Tolkien is saying... I. I I think he's saying, I can't be sure he's saying, but I think he's saying that Nerdanel tells Feanor to just have fun with his own hand for the rest of forever. Seven's enough. Now, for the cousins of these little hellions, Fingolfin and his wife, Anire, they have a respectable three kids. 
These are the brothers, Fingon and Turgon, and their sister, Arathel the White, who loves hanging out with her Hellion cousins. Um, quick note, if you go reading on this as well, uh, two of the names already, Mayathros and Arathel. Um, Tolkien said, let's throw in some archaic spelling too. So Arathel being spelled A-R-E-D-H-E-L, um, but apparently the D is a T, so Arathel the White. Uh, Finn or Finn, Fanor's other brother. He marries a Teleri, um, the daughter of Olway, named Arwen. They have five kids, and these are four brothers, Finrod Felagund, the, the Felagund being a title he earns later, but we're going to use it now because it's fun to say, Finrod Felagund, um, Orodreth, Angrod, and Aegnor. Um, and then they've got one sister, an altogether badass, Galadriel whose hair was said to shine with the light of the golden Valinorian tree, Laurelin. And there we have our cast. Whew, sure took us long enough. Um, now I'm, I'm anticipating a tonal shift of sorts from here on out. That is to say, a, a shift in the mood of the pro- podcast project. And I'm, I'm hoping it's going to make it both more interesting for you listeners and honestly less of a headache for me to compile and keep straight. So, so far we've covered relatively little in a long period of time. That's part of the daunting nature of the Silmarillion, I think. It's it's not that the story, once we get to it, is so complex. It There's just so much world building and years of elf sex to get through before we can actually tell it. But congrats. Pat yourself on the back for putting up with me this long, because now we're actually going to try to just tear through the actual plot, and hopefully this does shift from being less of a history of Middle-earth and it's now more of an actual book summary. So, here we go. Now, it makes no sense, except that it needed to happen for Tolkien to tell a story. But there's something to remember again about the Valar, and that is that they are not perfect, all-wise beings. They have quirks. They have shortcomings. The greatest shortcoming for Manway, High King, head in the clouds is that the dude is apparently so pure he actually doesn't understand the nature of evil. You could pick his pocket and sell it back to him and he'd thank you for it. Um, Now, it's said that three ages have passed. Now, Tolkien isn't entirely clear on how long, how many years is an age. You know, it could be 1,000 years, could be 3,000 years, but three ages have passed. So we're looking at anywhere from three to 9,000 years total. I don't know, but three ages was the, the, the length of Melkor's sentence of captivity in Mandos. So he's hauled out after three ages, and he's put on trial. And he, you know, he simply cries, pardon me, forgiveness, and I learned my lesson. In an interesting note, I only realized reading it this time around, Nienna, my favorite girl, how could you? She supports his apology. Um... And Manway believes it, despite other Valar like Ulmo and Tolkis maintaining their distrust of Melkor. And he's set free! And Melkor roams free for a long while in Valinor, just like everybody else. And the Noldor, well, they start treating him like the cool uncle who just got out of prison. He's going to teach him some streetwise stuff. They're not getting at home. And you know, if you'll remember from back in Episode 1, Melkor's abilities in Middle-earth are, are similar to Aule. He's this great craftsman as well. He's just twisted. Um, Noldor, being craftspeople themselves, are like, sweet, some new skills to learn. Um, 
his influence begins to seep into the hearts of the Noldor. Uh, while this definitely makes what happens next possible, it is important to note what Tolkien says, and that's that Feanor, really only ever trusting Feanor alone, himself hating Melkor extremely deeply, he really sees him for what he is the entire time, that Feanor is the sole perpetrator of the events he himself puts into motion later on. And some of those we'll, we'll end with and then get into next time. Now, Feanor is a magnificent and talented craftsman. He's extra about everything, so he's extra about his work, and he produces these fantastic things. And his crowning achievements were three gems. The Silmarils, friends. The Silmarils. And they were held in reverence by everyone, even the Valar, because in them glowed the sacred mingling light of the two trees of Valinor. Somehow, he was able to capture that light in these three gems. And Lady Varda of Stars blesses them, and she puts an enchantment on them, so no evil or malicious hands can touch these gems, these Silmarils, without burning. And Melkor both hates them and wants them for himself. And knowing he can never prove trustworthy to Feanor, he plots his end. And like every snake... He starts with a little poison. You see, in all these passing years, you know, possibly 9,000 or more, not once have any of the Valar said anything to the elves. These firstborn, they're essentially spoiled like Finway spoiled Feanor. Nobody ever told them they have siblings that could be arriving any time now. The humans. But guess who was present in the beginning and knows they're coming? Melkor. And he begins to let a little bit of info slip here and there. You know, enough to start a rumor, guide thoughts and fears. And it becomes this idea that Manway himself already has this new race of mystery people in his control. And he's planning to take all the works of the elves and allow these humans to take control of it. Because the humans, well the humans can be better controlled by the Valar. So this, this idea begins to affect Feanor who begins to desire freedom from Valinor and to pursue other lands to make his own in the event that the ones he has will be lost. Melkor goes further, and he begins to plant ideas of familial coup. Begins to say that Feanor and Fingolfin are plotting to usurp kingship of the Noldor from their father Finway. And when Melkor goes beyond that even, he says Feanor being the firstborn of a different and first chosen mother, he's not going to be looking to share. And once these sparks become embers, Melkor teaches these elves who have otherwise had no knowledge of this, of weapons. So now we have Fanor, already growing more and more paranoid of losing home and status, and his Silmarils, which he's becoming more obsessed with by the day, beginning to talk openly of rebellion against the Valar. And he's out there in, the, like, in public calling them liars for withholding critical information, and Finnerfin goes to Daddy Finway one day, and he's like, we got to do something about Feanor. He's going to ruin everything. And just then, Feanor comes in, and he's in armor, and he's armed with a sword. And he's like, oh, 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 so the rumors are true. I see how it is. Little brother's turning Daddy against me to take over my rightful rule of the Noldor. And he draws his sword, and he tells Finnerfin to know his place. 
important to note, it's been 9,000 years. Not only have elves never had weapons, they've never drawn a weapon against another elf before. Now, Finnerfin bows to father and leaves. Did I say Finnerfin? Pretty sure. I'm going to go back. This whole time I've been saying Finnerfin, and I can't remember if it was Finnerfin or Fingolfin. See, I'm, I'm even getting confused here. Either way, one of his brothers... One of his brothers goes to the dad and says, look, we need to do something about Fanor. Fanor comes in, sees him consorting with the dad and says, look, you need to know your place. So brother takes off and leaves. He basically bows to bows to Finway and just books it. And Fanor chases him to the door and he places the point of the sword at his brother's chest. And he says, you know, among some other things, this is sharper than your tongue. Now, the Valar catch word Feanor's put on trial. He's told by Mandos that if he's upset at the idea of being servant to Manway, then good luck, because Manway's rule extends beyond a man. And Feanor is sentenced to exile for 12 years outside the regions of the elves. So he leaves. You know, he doesn't have to leave the continent, but he has to leave the city and where all the elves have set up shop. So he leaves, he heads north, and all seven of his brats go with him, and so does Finway unable to see his firstborn son leave and they set up shop in the hills and Fanor makes a, a sort of stronghold but more like a treasury for all his stuff and his paranoia is now full tilt and he, he puts the Silmarils in a special chamber of iron where he and his sons and father only are allowed to go in and look at them and then Melkor disappears from influence for a while but then one day he shows up at Feanor's door and in a last-ditch effort to win him over, basically says, hey, you know, this isn't going to keep out the Valar. You know, they're they're going to come for those Silmarils. And it has the opposite effect of what he intended. It only makes Feanor's hatred of Melkor reach such an extent that it's it's said like you could, it's palpable, the hatred emanating from Feanor. And then in one of my favorite lines in the story, Tolkien says Feanor shuts the doors of his house in the face of the mightiest of all the dwellers in Ea. Ea being, you know, reality. He couldn't say. Anyway, it's Melkor's turn now to feel the pressure. His dark intentions like they did in ages past, they're, they're starting to have this physical presence. In Valinor, the trees don't seem quite as bright. Um, there's an unrest, a palpable unrest, and the Valar are beginning to notice this, so Melkor quietly leaves for a while. Things return to normal. Nobody thinks to notice for a while that his leaving is what made things improve, but eventually Manway kind of catches wind and people come from, you know, from, from Feanor. He learns what happened there. So he sends Orome and Tolkis out to find Melkor. You know, they're thinking, oh, he's back to his old ways. He's going to try to go back to Middle-earth, get back to his strongholds. He's going to try to, you know, reform himself to what he was and yes that is what he's trying to do but they run north thinking he's going to go across the Helcaroxe back into middle earth really really Melkor has gone south he doubles back he, he pulls one over on them he goes way down south where there's you know there's there's places unexplored even by the Valar and there's a Maiar that lives there that once held old allegiances to him but She's become so powerful in and of herself that she's since broken off these ties. And her name is Ungoliant. And in her insatiable, lustful appetites, she takes the form of a humongous queen of spiders. 
and she lives in a ravine spun with black webs. And the meat her Melkor changes his form to that of the powerful lord that he once held ages ago, and he begins to plot revenge with her. And he promises her as payment anything at all that she would want to eat, and they make their way back north. Meanwhile, Manway loves festivals. Melkor knows this, and one is being planned now. Every elf is going to be in Valinor for it. It's, it it's, festivals are they're such a big deal that Manway has even ordered Feanor to attend, even though Feanor is still technically exiled. But while Feanor comes as commanded, uh, his father Finway, an invited guest, refuses to attend because his son is still in exile. He says, yeah, you're ordering him to come, but he's not coming of his own free will. I'm not coming. Um, and it said at this festival that Feanor and Finarfin, yeah, in this note I said Finarfin, so maybe it has been Finarfin this whole time. Feanor and Finarfin are reconciled. Finarfin, being the bigger elf, tells Feanor he forgives him. Um, he's going to consider him his Eldar. He's going to consider him his king, should it come to that. But the reunion is marred, friends, as we finish up the story for today. Because just as the trees of Valinor are in their moment of mingled half-light, the time of day, the Valar and the elves hold most dear. Melkor and Ungoliant come upon them. And Melkor has a great spear, and he pierces them, and Ungoliant drinks them dry. Belching black vapors, and that's not my word, that's Tolkien's, belching black vapors into the sky to cover their escape. And by the time everyone knows what's happening, they're far in retreat to the north. And there's this smog of Ungoliant that's covering their trail. And they say it's so, so toxic that even once Tolkis finally manages to catch up with, the, you know, he hits this smog and it's like a brick wall. All he can do is stand there and claw at the air. And Ungoliant and Melkor escape. And the crowning achievement of Valinor, it's gone. Just like that, it's, it's gone. The trees are withered. They're poisoned. Yavanna can reach up to touch one and it crumbles beneath her fingers. Not one of the Valor has the skill to really heal or recreate them. And then Yavanna brings up the Silmarils. These magnificent jewels that carry the light of both trees within them. And she says, you know, with, with the light that's still in those, I might possibly be able to return some beauty to the trees. I might be able to heal them. And Feanor, drama king that he is, says, Hail no. If I lose my life's work, if I see it broken, I'm going to be the first elf to die in Valinor. You know, forgetting, of course, he basically, you know, killed his own mother in utero. But, you know, then to further add gasoline to the fire, um, a messenger arrives from Feanor's home in exile. And he says, Melkor's been there. And... Melkor had broken in, and Melkor had stolen the Silmarils, and Melkor had killed Finway, who tried to stop him. And here begins the true tale of the Silmarillion, friends, and it's a tragedy, because in his grief and rage, Fanor not only calls down curses upon Melkor, this is where he renames him Morgoth, Morgoth, the great enemy, the black enemy of all who live. Um, that's what he's going to become known as forever now. And he also calls curses down upon the Valar, 
calls them thieves and liars. And he begins in the streets to embolden the Noldor to now follow him as king and to leave the land of Aman and the rule of the Valar and to return again to freedom in Middle-earth. Um, and last and worst of all, he gathers his seven sons and all together with him, they swear a terrible oath to Iluvatar himself that they will not rest until they have recovered the Silmarils and no living thing, no monster, no elf, no human, no Valar will be safe from the wrath they will pour out on them if they even think to take a Silmaril from Feanor or one of his sons. Those are theirs, and they will fight and kill anybody who comes in their way. And we'll see the ugly after effects of this oath play out now, each episode, until this project's end. Um, because Feanor and each of his seven sons have doomed themselves. There's an excellent piece of fan art I, I just saw, and I shared it on my Instagram. I'm going to repost it. Um, it's an eight-pointed star against a background of red, and on each point of the star is impaled Feanor and Maethros and Maglor and Keligorm and Carinthir and Kurufin and Amrod and Amrasen. This tale of the Silmarillion is of their doom and how it affects the rest of the citizens of Arda forever. Until next time, friends, I'll see you where home is behind and the world is ahead.